For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How was your holiday? Do you even remember it? We're already like well into the new year. Happy New Year anyway. I wanted to thank you, dear listeners, for all your support. If you're new to the show, a very warm welcome. But if you've been here for a while, and we've been doing this show since 2017, then I'm just so honoured and grateful that we've kept you interested with our stories and you're still here with us. So thank you. Now, this story is very interesting. Everybody's talking about it, and I thought, we've got to cover it. It's about ultra-fast fashion and the juggernaut online that is she-in. And I did actually mean to ask this week's guests if they thought I'd get time with she-in founder Chris Zhu, but I forgot because we were too busy talking. (laughs) But anyway, I know the answer. Google Chris Zhu, and you'll find that he is an elusive man indeed. No one seems to know too much about him. The most common stuff that comes up is that he doesn't give interviews and that he's worth a mint. Megan Tobin and Louise Matsakis, along with the Beijing-based Wenxi Chen, spent months investigating how this online phenomenon she in became such a big deal. I read their story in The Guardian, but it was actually published first on a new or new-ish tech site. It's called Rest of World, and we'll hear about that just before Christmas. Anyway, I was obsessed because... Much of what gets talked about in reference to fast fashion is fast becoming obsolete. It's just not how things work anymore. We're so used to thinking that fast fashion means Zara and H&M, or it's how the high street knocks off catwalk stuff. Prepare to have those assumptions blown away. Now, here's a quote from the Rest of World article. Shein isn't chasing runway trends. Rather, it knocks off items seen on TikTok and Instagram, where the hype cycles move significantly faster. Essentially, they're more like Amazon than a traditional fashion brand. And this is the thing that kept sort of sticking in my mind. When you look on the Shein website, to to me anyway, it just seems like a massive hodgepodge. It's just very incoherent. It doesn't feel designed or like a collection. And what it's selling is volume of choice. It's about insane numbers of SKUs or styles. And they throw it all out there to see what sticks. And that's why it all looks so random. It's about the algorithm. They're nimble enough that they can move on that when they see what people want. And then, of course, it's interesting because of how much money it's raking in. So maybe you read the reports from June last year. Shein was then the biggest selling fast fashion brand in the US. So they have 28% of the market, far eclipsing their competitors. And that same month, there were rumours of an impending IPO. And the valuation, you ready for it? $47 billion. Now, There's been quite a lot of pressure on Shein to step up its sustainability game and at least admit or be more transparent about how it does stuff. And so there's a new CSR page on the site and they talk about our products, our planet. Hmm, (laughs) here's a line. The world is our runway. So let's start acting like it by turning to sustainable practices and fabrics. We're doing our part in keeping the planet as pretty as can be. (laughs) I don't know. Smacks of greenwashing to me. Yeah, I clicked through and the argument is actually interesting. They're basically saying that, here's the line, others go big, we go small. So they're trying to argue that because they only produce smaller runs of huge numbers of styles, 
they are wasting less. And they say it's only when we confirm that a style is in high demand do we implement large-scale production. I'm not buying it, but this is not actually an episode about waste. We've done plenty of those already. It is, however, as I'm sure you will agree, absolutely full of revealing insights. Okay, let's get to it. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Megan Tobin and Louise Matsakis. Thank you so much for joining us. I did just wanted to say that we did reach out to your colleague, Wensi Chen, but she can't record with us because of time zone issues. But we do want to shout out to her and acknowledge that throughout this interview, she is part of this story we're going to tell. But welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Claire. We're so excited to be here. Now, before the holidays, I read your brilliant investigative piece. I read it in The Guardian, where they syndicated it from the publication Rest of Worlds. Rest of Worlds is a relatively new, launched in May 2020 magazine, only digital, so published online and focused on kind of the intersection of technology and culture outside of the US and uh, EU and Australia. So it's kind of a play. The name is kind of a play on a uh, silly corporate term that you see in like all kinds of company reports where you might say, oh, you know, the app has this much traction in the US and this much traction in the EU and rest of world is all lumped together. And so our mission is to kind of, you know, disentangle that. You know, just like the vast majority of humanity um, that is mostly ignored in English language news and especially news about tech. Three of you wrote it. So with Wensi as well. And it's about fast fashion. Ultra fast fashion is the phrase that you used. We spent six months investigating kind of this whole internet-enabled ecosystem of ultra-fast fashion retailers, really led by Chinese company Shein. They're kind of synonymous with ultra-fast fashion these days, um, but there's a whole constellation of suppliers who sell on Amazon and also on AliExpress that we were also really interested in, in looking into. I'm going to ask you just to explain Shein in one sentence. What If you've never heard of it, if you're like, what's that? It's not the new top shop. What is it? Perhaps it is a new top shop. Louise. Shein started as a company called She Inside, and then the name was uh, changed later to Shein. But I would say that Shein is the biggest and most important fashion company on the planet right now. Wow. <laughs> important doesn't mean good, but I think that it is sort of a bellwether for what's happening in the industry. Before we we get into it. I'm going to just ask you to do a slightly weird thing, which is kind of quote yourself and introduce it. So Megan, do you want to read out the headline for us, please? Sure. So it reads how Shein beat Amazon at its own game and reinvented fast fashion. Okay. Now you begin with this story of a student. She's a 20-year-old from Texas. Now I say that because she's not a super famous person. We're not talking about Cardi B or Kendall Jenner or I don't know, Gigi Hadid here, but she's, I looked her up on TikTok. She's got about 20,000 followers. She calls herself a level 1000 thrifter. Essentially, she loves secondhand stuff. And she had found this jumper. It's like a sleeveless pink and red checked vest jumper. And she posted a picture of herself. What happened, Megan? Well, actually, I kind of feel like Louise, you should be the person to tell the story. Do you want me yeah, to tell it? Yeah. So sure. Louise actually is the person who interviewed her. So Julia found this vest in a thrift store, but it's actually a children's vest, which I think is amazing. Oh, so it's with, shrunken. Yeah, it was, so it's probably designed for like a six-year-old, right? And it's like super 90s, like this Argyle vest. 
And what she did was uh, she put it on Depop, which is kind of like eBay for Gen Z, right? It's like this secondhand selling app, super trendy. And it sold really quickly. I think she sold it for like $20. And within a few weeks, oh no, are you guys hearing that? Let me just give my dog something because that's his collar. So, <laughs> What's his name? His name is Mango, but he's about to bark. So let me... Hi, Mango. Uh, let him yeah. bark. Yes. Mango's so give, me one one second. <laughs> give me one second. Hi, let me Mango. just give him something. <laughs> yeah, he's the worst. Okay, so I, I gave him a bunch of treats. So I'm hoping that that's for the best. What kind of dog is he? Oh, Claire, I don't know. Um, he's, he's a rescue. He looks like a cow. Um, he's like black and white. I, I would show you him, but that would really only make it worse. Maybe once we're done, I can, can make a cameo. So she found it in a thrift store and she put it on Depop, I think for like around 20 bucks. And it sold instantly. And I think that Julia didn't really think much of it. But within a few weeks, she realized that the picture of her wearing the vest was showing up on all sorts of websites. So it was showing up on Amazon, it was showing up on Walmart. The first place that she saw was this defunct site that like I'd never heard of called Preguy. I'm not sure how you might pronounce that, um, but it's not even on the internet anymore. But that was one of the first places that she saw her photo. So what she realized is that all of these companies were trying to imitate the vest, right? So this thing that had been, you know, in a thrift store, super obscure was now was now everywhere. It was now all across the internet. There were even instances where the picture had been altered, right? Yeah. So as time went on, it, it's very like uncanny valley. You you see that the picture went from sort of this like normal girl. It was a really trendy, cute picture. She's holding a Dior saddlebag. Like we love it. But then all of a sudden, like someone had photoshopped her hand into it not her hand, someone else's hand with like long manicure and her body became sort of like distorted and cyborg-y. And I think it really sucked for her. I think it was a really unfortunate experience. I raise that just, I mean, we'll get into the real story here, but I find that really creepy. Yeah, I definitely think it's creepy. I think it's super common to have like photos stolen across the internet, but it's definitely weird. You, you don't think about like your eBay listing, right? Or like your Depop listing, ending up somewhere else. And I think it was especially weird because it was a photo of her own body. So then what happened to the vest? They're all over the world now. I think there are hundreds of thousands of, of copies of these vests. And we actually ordered a few. Um, so it was really sort of surreal to see what they looked like in person. But the vest ended up all over the internet and it, it's still there. So over a year later, there are a number of companies that are still selling, I would call them replicas, I guess, of, of this vest that she found. Okay, I'm going to ask you to do one more quote yourself job, Megan. It's from the fifth paragraph. Can you go down to that bit? It starts, a vest that had started as a one-off. Yeah, so a vest that had started as a one-off thrift find was now available for anyone to purchase, and often for an even lower price. As with many fashion trends, it had been plucked from social media and dropped into the frenzied machine of the global e-commerce market. It was multiplying almost of its own accord in the factories of China's swelling ultra-fast fashion industry. Contributor. Yeah, some thoughts, you know, like, uh, <laughs> yeah, Mango has his own shrunken sweater vest, so. <laughs> All right, let me pick you up on that phrase, ultra-fast fashion. Everybody's heard of fast fashion, but adding that ultra word, well, first of all, it's quite stressful. I feel stressed by ultra-fast fashion, but what do you mean? And I did have a question here. It was, what does Amazon have to do with it all? 
ultra fast fashion. I think it's sort of like a colloquialism. Like it's one of these things that like no one quite understands what it means. But to me, uh, I think we had this first wave of fast fashion, which was sort of Zara, H&M, these sort of mall stores. And they were known for replenishing their products, you know, every few weeks, right? You know, a few decades ago, the fashion market worked in season. So you would have a release every season. And then these new fast fashion companies said, you know, that's not enough to get people in stores. Once they've seen the season, that's it. So they started, you know, making much more production and moving things much more quickly. And then companies like Amazon came along. Amazon really um, connected Americans to Chinese factories in a direct way that they hadn't been connected to before and kind of eliminated a lot of the older elements of traditional retail. People didn't need to go to a store. They didn't need to go to a dressing room. They didn't need to interact with a salesperson. Um, And they could also get a nearly infinite variety of items at almost any price point. For people who are not even across the Amazon business model, I mean, obviously it's a household name. Everyone knows what Amazon is, but do they know what it does? Do you want to just summarize how the kind of marketplace has worked? Amazon is basically an aggregator of third-party sellers. So they do sell, you know, their own branded items. Um, but also, you know, mostly when you're a consumer showing up on Amazon's website, you're going to find items that are, you know, sold under different brand names. And Shein is doing this a little bit as well. So they sometimes keep the branding of one of their manufacturers or suppliers actually all the way through to their app. And so you'll see the name will be like Sheen True or Icy Zone. Those are two that we found in our research. And their actual suppliers, you can find their products on Amazon as well. You can find them on AliExpress, but they kept the branding all the way through to Shein. And so an interesting thing about this is, you know, it's kind of aggregating all these suppliers, giving people an infinite variety of choice and kind of decreasing the distance between the consumer and the factory mostly in this, you know, heavily garment producing area of China in a way that hasn't been done before. So when we talk about this ultra fast fashion business model, it's not only about speed, it's also about a different format of accessing product, maybe cutting out the middleman, if you like, or cutting out the brand completely. It's absolutely about variety. And um, that's something that's really key to Shein's business model, but it's also key to Amazon's success and staying power with consumers and key to success of platforms like AliExpress's platforms that are available and Alibaba's platforms that are available in China is this kind of infinite variety that is available to consumers. So the producers can almost show, here's a a t-shirt or here's a pair of workout leggings, and you could get it in almost any color imaginable. And because they have software directing their production and either their interaction with their own factories or their interaction with their suppliers, they're able to almost like flip a switch. So the products that are shown on the website almost act like lures, like you're, you as a consumer are kind of floating in the sea of choice. And when you bite and, and choose, I want the shirt, you know, with the purple polka dots on it, or I want the camo print workout leggings, that's all of a sudden going to trigger this whole, you know, production chain. And that's what we saw with the Argyle vest, Julia's specific combination that she found of their, their pink and red, all of a sudden was everywhere because they could swing this kind of production apparatus behind it immediately. I think the difference between fast fashion and ultra fast fashion is the internet, right? Like fast fashion was about like, you know, copying runways, right? I think a 
really example that I can't forget is the Balenciaga triple S sneaker, right? Like all of a sudden Zara was making a knockoff of that, right? That's sort of the old model. Whereas I feel like the ultra fast fashion model is like a 20 year old on Depop, right? And we're going to rip that off straight from the internet. So I think that's the difference for me. It's not just speed. It's not just variety, but it's about being influenced by social media and using things like algorithms and data to influence what you're producing. Okay. Fascinating. I wanted to talk about overproduction and waste. When I think about fast fashion, and I've been involved in this conversation for so many years now, those are the two things I think about immediately. Far too much product, purposefully overproduced and then wasted, but also the sheer volumes. And we often quote on this podcast, the figures around We don't even know what they are, but we speculate that more than 150 billion garments a year are produced and that at least a third of them never get sold in the first place. But what did you discover from your investigation about the numbers of styles that a brand like Shein might be producing? Yeah, so we looked at, um, you can actually see this information in Shein's app. So there's a tab in the app that's new arrivals and they post, it scrolls back, I think, a week or 10 days at a time. So you can see every, you know, how big the new releases have been every day for the last really? week or so. I've never looked. It's super interesting. And actually, I noticed as as we were tracking this that the numbers change over time, um, which is something that I really want to dig into more. Um, not dramatically, but it might say, oh, on Wednesday, we uh, released 8,500. And then two days later on Friday, the number listed for Wednesday will actually be like 8,300. So there's, you know, some interesting numbers going on there, but they they claim that uh, we tracked this over a period of months, I think from July through through December, and between 2,000 and 10,000 items uh, were released every day and really ramped up, especially um, in advance of the holiday shopping season. And in China, there's a, a big shopping holiday in November. It's called Singles Day 11-11. And um, it's becoming increasingly popular on Western shopping sites, offer deals for it. And so, you know, they were really ramping up production as early as November. And so we just saw some like really massive releases. I mean, when people hear these numbers for the first time, when you first said 8,200 or 8,300, and then you're saying between two and 10,000 a day, it's mind boggling, isn't it? It's mind boggling, but you also have to keep in mind that there's a massive variety of items on this website. So, you know, in a way it's very similar to Amazon or AliExpress, you can find almost anything. And so it's not just clothing, it's not just shoes, it's Halloween costumes for your pets. It's random things for your home that you may never... Can we talk about the pee funnel? (laughs) Uh, An inside joke, kind of, we didn't actually get this into the story, but a big inside joke between Megan and I and our reporting was um, this pee funnel. And it's, I think it's to like, you know, in order to, you know, be able to go to the bathroom when you're camping. Like a plastic funnel. Like a plastic funnel. So like a woman could, you know, pee like a man while they're camping. And so that's the kind of thing. I mean, I think... It's an amazing amount of items and it's interesting to think about it in terms of waste, but but I see it as 8,000 experiments a day, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. they're trying to see what people are interested in and like, you know, only a handful of those are really going to be hits, probably not the pee funnel, but maybe it's still there. So, you know, it's probably selling, but... They also have like clips that will hold your sheets onto your bed and like things that will like attach your cell phone to the wall and like just things they really are like experiments, but it allows them to boost, you know, the number of SKUs. And that's part of what they're getting a lot of attention for is just the sheer volume of items released every day. Two things occurred to me when you were telling those stories. One is that they're actually bragging. It's actually a selling point to say 
this many thousands. I didn't actually realise that you go on the app and they're shouting about it. It's not a shame, a point of shame for them. Whereas in my space and sustainability, it's a point of shame. Everyone's trying to say, no, 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 we're not overproducing. My goodness, we're reducing. So that's interesting. But the other thing that I wanted to maybe unpack a bit is what you touched on there, that they might trial or launch these SKUs, but they're not necessarily producing them at volume, 8,000 of them. They're seeing what works, right? So there's a huge uptick in how many products are, I don't even know if we can use the word designed loosely, products are offered, but they're not necessarily churning them all out at scale. No, and they're not actually responsible for it. So Shein, like Amazon, I think like what makes them similar is that they're both marketplaces, right? Like Shein is basically working with thousands of Chinese factories who make these products. And I think that that's why you see sort of like this insane variety, right? Like the pea funnel is probably not being made in the same factory as the camo butt lifting workout pants, as Megan put it. They're able to conduct these experiments and take these risks because they're not responsible for the inventory, right? If H&M made 8,000 items a day, it would fill all of their warehouses and they would be screwed and have to put those items on markdown as they always do. But Shein can say, okay, like, we're just going to cut you off. Sorry, you have 100 goldfish keychains left over that people didn't want. But that's part of why they're able to do that. In the course of reporting this story, we worked with an excellent China-based reporter named Wenxi Chen, and she's a freelancer based out of Beijing, and she was able to reach sellers who work in the supply chain and suppliers to Xi'an, and one former Xi'an supplier that uh, she was in contact with told her that it really does transfer the inventory risk, basically, away from away from Xi'an and to the supplier. And actually how it works is every supplier basically gets like a login to Xi'an's internal IT system and the IT system directs them. And so it can say, okay, well, actually, you know, only a hundred of these gold necklaces sold this week. So don't make any more of them next week. And, you know, tons of people are buying the camo leggings. So definitely ramp up production on those. And the relationship between the suppliers and the IT system is a huge part of why Shein is basically able to avoid the risk of holding inventory. And that's what these suppliers told Wensi in her reporting that one of the biggest risks as a retailer is holding inventory. And that's one of the hardest you know, challenges to solve in fashion. And so the company basically doesn't have to do it. And that's why there's almost no one that can challenge you know, Shein's supremacy in this space. I was going to say then, So potentially it's not that bad then because they're not necessarily overproducing at scale, but then you've just told a story of a shifting of responsibility. So let's not be under any kind of illusions. I just want listeners to think about this because we are still locked in this habit of talking about fast fashion as being H&M and Zara and Forever 21. And I pulled out some quotes here just from media. And this is not to slag them off because I use or a variation of these explanations all the time when I'm talking to general audiences. People will say, what is fast fashion? We haven't even got around to ultra yet. They go, what do you mean? How can fashion have a pace? What do you mean by fast? And so we say, as you said before, well, it used to be seasonal and now the seasons have disappeared and we've sped up production. So here's good on you's explainer. Clothes shopping used to be an occasional event, something that happened a few times a year when the seasons changed. About 20 years ago, clothes became cheaper and trend cycles sped up as shopping became a hobby. Enter fast fashion and the global chains that dominate our high streets. Now we're not on the high street anymore. 
we need to completely flip how we're talking about fast fashion as a business model because it's almost not relevant. Of course, Zara and H&M are still big players. But if you look at the supremacy now of a company like Shein, I think we need to change the whole way we talk about it. Why do you think we haven't yet and that media is, is so slow to cotton onto this? I think something that we talked about a lot in our reporting was that I think that Shein got the benefit of being a tech company and a fashion company. And because of that, it sort of fell into the abyss in the middle. And it was really important to me, actually, that this story was our editors and all three of the reporters who worked on it are all women, because I think that men can be really dismissive or they don't really understand sort of the fashion communities online that are talking about companies like Shein. But at the same time, I think that a lot of people in the fashion community are, you know, maybe dismissive and, you know, you can't go see these items in stores, although there is now a pop-up in LA that Shein is putting on. But, you know, you can't see these items in stores. You're not rubbing elbows with Shein executives or Shein designers at uh, Fashion Week, right? So I think that, like, they sort of just got away with the fact that they kind of fell into that middle space. Yeah, I think for me, you know, this story was also kind of like an amalgamation of things that maybe people don't take as seriously, you know, like people tend to kind of brush off like fast fashion as kind of frivolous or like clothing for, especially, you know, this, this company is really popular among particularly young shoppers and often young women. And, you know, that tends to be written off people with less spending power tends to be written off by the fashion community in general. And also, you know, one of the things you brought up about how the seasons kind of aren't relevant anymore and shopping isn't necessarily a special occasion anymore. It's something people are doing all the time. And one of the reasons that Shein has been so successful is they've almost like gamified the shopping experience, which we can get into in a little bit. But I think that's also something that tends to kind of get brushed off or not taken seriously. Like, oh, it's just silly, frivolous young people following trends and playing games. And actually, they're the, they have the highest percentage of the retail market in America right now. How interesting. So it's actually a feminist issue. It's about the ridiculous way that we dismiss, and when I say we, I've got that in inverted commas, young people's concerns, silly women's business, fashion and shopping. But that whole idea that this was a tech story that potentially some of those tech bros or friends of didn't take very seriously. That's interesting, isn't it? We saw a lot of men who were like, no one's heard of Shein. And I'm like, yeah, you haven't heard of Shein because like, you're a middle-aged man. Like, they're not targeting you. Like, I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of women in America under the age of 25 have heard of Shein. All right. At this juncture, though, I would just like to take a moment to say how fantastic that both of you are women in tech, women in tech journalism and tech reporting, young women. And this is a field that has been male dominated. And I mean, we don't have time on this podcast to get into it, but I'm fascinated by the whole idea that algorithms are written by old white men or maybe they're young white men, but, you know, a particular type. And I think that we have got a problem in reporting, haven't we, that we're just always having the same type of person tell the stories. Absolutely. And I mean, another reason that we both wanted to tell the story is we're both really interested in China. We've both done some reporting on tech companies in China. And I think that China is another add that to buckets of, you know, topics that people misunderstand or brush off. And when you say the word fast fashion, people automatically assume, you know, like horrible labor practices in China, um, which isn't necessarily inaccurate, but it's also not always the whole picture. And so I think we were really interested just to understand a little bit more and question some of those assumptions. So interesting. All right. I want to ask you about how you did the investigation. So we did a lot of stuff. We had Wensi, who was amazing, um, and she did a lot of the reporting on the ground in China. We talked to a bunch of experts. 
Megan actually tracked down a designer who participated in Shein's design challenge that was moderated by Khloe Kardashian and Christian Siriano. Multiple designers. <laughs> Multiple designers that were part of that competition. We actually ordered a bunch of clothes too, which was really interesting. And they all came to Megan's apartment. Um, and afterwards, she was like, what do you want me to do with this? And I was like, keep it in the office. Like, I want to take a group photo one day where we wear all the clothes. But so, yeah, there were a lot of components. I really kind of push for the test buys because I think mm. a big thing you see online is people are like, oh, like I saw that on Alibaba, right? And it's also being sold on Amazon. Like, why should I pay the higher price on Alibaba? And I think it's like this awareness that people have of that the same factories are making their products, right? Like I always, I think the fun statistic that everybody loves to share is that um, like all microwaves are made basically in the same factory in China. Are they? I've never heard that. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's just one factory. So there's no point in like comparing microwaves because they're all the same. But what we actually found when we got those clothes is that they were really good dupes of each other. They actually are, are quite similar. So we found that they just had very slight coloration differences. It looked like as if they had been made almost on exactly the same machine. Um, Louise just used the word dupes. Dupe is effectively, it's for, for duplicate and it's effectively just like a replica. Um, and these really did look like dupes. And we actually had a great time uh, in reporting this story, investigating those whole online communities of people who shop for dupes, particularly dupes of highly sought after like athletic wear. Um, so you, instead of paying, you know, $80 for Lululemon workout leggings, you could find them on AliExpress or on Shein. And sometimes they may actually have been made by the same supplier, although that's not something we, we confirmed in our reporting. But there's there's whole groups out there kind of dedicated to compiling the best places to source your dupes online. Because of price or because of feeling competitive about finding the best versions? I think there's an element of price and there's also an element of trend relevance and kind of being able to showcase, especially a lot of people who are paying attention to this, you know, spend a lot of time posting online um, and, you know, want to cultivate a sense of a certain lifestyle and kind of stay up on the latest trends. And so it's important to kind of be as relevant as possible and be on trend as possible. And, you know, so they're looking to the places where they can do that. And it turns out that there's this whole ecosystem of suppliers in China who are, you know, as Louise said, not knocking off the runway, they're knocking off TikTok. Okay. What else did you discover in your investigation? So actually, I haven't asked you what made you want to do it. What, what sparked it in the first place? We were seeing a lot of, of stories where people would say, oh, there's this mysterious fashion company that you've never heard of, but is worth billions of dollars. And we were kind of like, how can you have never heard of it? And also it's worth billions of dollars. Likely you haven't heard of it because the person writing the story is not a shopper there. But we really wanted to just dig into how did they all of a sudden become so popular you know, they didn't just do it on the strength of their own model. It was a, a combination of factors, including that people became extremely used to shopping online. Yeah. And I just also want to say that, like, I think part of the reason we did this story is because, like, we both really like fashion, too. And, like, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And it was just, like, hit so many of the boxes for me. Like, it was so fascinating to see this Chinese company be targeting American consumers directly because we all interact with China all the time. And it's through the products that we use every day. But usually those products have some Western brand, right? But here was this company that was like, no, we're going to keep sort of the Chinese branding, right? We're going to interact with you directly. And I thought that that was so fascinating. But another reason, obviously, is that it's become gigantic over the last few years. So I think that the pandemic really benefited Xi'an because everyone sort of shifted to online shopping. So the figure is that in the last year, 
I think their sales have increased 250%. So they brought in about $10 billion last year, according to data from Bloomberg. And they are worth upwards of $47 billion, which makes them one of the largest um, unlisted startups in the world. So, uh, you know, we're talking sort of like the scale of these really, really big tech companies that are in the news all the time. But here was this fashion company that wasn't getting nearly as much attention. Since we're talking about what they're worth and what they're raking in, let's just spend a moment talking about the price point of what they sell when we talk about fast fashion. And it's really struck me in recent years that we talk about fast fashion as being ultra cheap, but actually where I live in Australia, it's not ultra cheap. It may be exploitative and it may be ultra cheap when it comes to paying their workers. But actually, if you walk into a sort of high street fast fashion store, you can pay $100, $150 for garments. On Shein, what can you pay? On Shein, the price point can really be quite low. So we're talking, you know, $5, $7, $8 for a garment. There are some, you know, kind of premium lines where you can buy products that maybe are made of recycled fabric or have some cashmere content or something like that. And, the, you know, they might be $25 for an item, but really the price point is, is on average quite low. And that was actually like another reason why we wanted to do the story because I spent some time living in China a few years ago and this model of shopping in real life, you know, you can walk through these clothes markets in, in Beijing and in Shanghai and there's an infinite variety of clothes at a similar price point. And kind of everything uh, available looks like it was made um, in response to the same trend. So you might go on one weekend and denim shirts with like white lace collars are really popular. And so you can get one for five bucks on like every corner. And then the next weekend, it's something completely different, you know, like faux leather black leggings or something. So this model of shopping is something that Shein was kind of bringing to Western consumers. And we hadn't really seen anything else like it. So why do you think that they've been so successful? Obviously, price is attractive. Low prices are attractive to a certain shopper. And I say that with a, you know, I, I recognize a privilege in saying that. It's ridiculous to assume that everyone can afford to buy beautifully made clothes, maybe the most sustainable option. I know all that. However, when we're talking about something that costs five bucks, someone always pays the price for too cheap, right? And I mean, if you look at examples from the UK, I think it was Fashion Nova, was it? Could be misguided. Who cares? They're all the same. The one pound bikini. So when you're looking at things that are that cheap, they have usually been produced with some level of exploitation, whether that is two people or planet. How do you think they've been so successful? So 47 billion bucks, that's a lot. Not just the pandemic, but what else? I think... The biggest thing is that they learned how to work with influencers. So they work with thousands of influencers. And I think it's also worth noting that they're really global. So they actually got banned by the Indian government, but that's a different story. And it wasn't really about them specifically. But before they got banned, they were working with 2000 influencers in India alone. So, you know, this is everyone from like B-list bachelor stars to like, you know, up and coming micro influencers. They worked with people all across different platforms. And they also leaned into really aggressive um, online marketing. So a lot of Facebook ads, a lot of Google ads, depending on where you are in the world now, if you type into Google really basic fashion searches, white bikini, red t-shirt, um, it's likely that Shein will be one of the first results in that carousel because they've paid so much for paid search advertising. Mm. So I think that those are two reasons. 
They also did a really good job of going after demographics that traditional fashion companies don't care about or ignore. Um, And the biggest one is plus size consumers. So we heard from a number of shoppers, including some who are my friends, who said, this is one of the only places that I can get a wide selection of cute clothes in my size. Is that right? Yeah. And they're affordable. And like, you know, if you look at the offerings on, you know, not to call out one company, but on like Torrid, right, or some of these other companies that cater to plus size consumers, it's the same kind of like fugly, like 2010s tunic, right? And then if you look at the stuff that's in street sizes, it's really cute, it's trendy. And I think Shein decided to fill that hole that so many other brands were almost scared or, you know, ashamed for no reason to fill. So I think those are some of the reasons. I find this really confronting as a conversation because that's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing that a company is catering to a demographic or a market that we keep ignoring for ridiculous reasons. And yet coming back to this thing about price and exploitation, I can't believe that that's not the basis of this business model. Let's talk about what you discovered through your investigation about how garment workers were treated and about the time pressures in particular that some of the people making these items are under. Absolutely. So there's been a lot of great reporting on this. Um, and Wensi, our, our co-reporter, um, spoke to some current suppliers of Shein and also some garment workers who work in the industry in general. And, you know, they really talked a lot about how everybody is already so overstretched for time. Like it is just an industry that is really pressed already to meet their deadlines. People are really overworked. And, you know, in this case, there's no more margin that people can add. And so one knitwear machine, a knitting factory operator, which I was really excited she was able to speak with someone who operates the knitwear machine since we were kind of, you know, centering the story around Mm -hmm. the production of this knit vest. She shared that there's no one in her factory that isn't already working overtime. And so the factories really have to go out and search for more workers because at this point, everyone's already so overworked. And there was a great investigation also by a Chinese media site called Sixth Tone. And they found that a lot of garment workers in Xi'an factories, you know, really suffered kind of similar problems that we see from workers in Amazon warehouses where they're walking, you know, miles every shift and on their feet all day and really physically tough, tough conditions. And you mentioned before about the sort of shifting or shunting of responsibility from the brand onto the suppliers. And in sustainability and fashion, we always talk about transparency being the starting point for having a responsible supply chain. But in this case, clearly, there's an awful lot of work to do when it comes to transparency. I hadn't read anything before I read your piece that spent as many weeks trying to dig into how these pieces were made and how they came to be. We just don't know, right? Yeah, I think the responsibility thing is really important because I was an Amazon reporter for years. And I think what I saw over and over again is that when there would be dangerous stuff on the marketplace, Amazon would maybe ban the seller, but they actually weren't responsible under U.S. law for like any of the harms. So I think you're seeing like a similar thing going on with Shein, right? Like how can you do supply chain management? How can you ensure that all the suppliers you're working with are ethical if there's 6,000 of them, right? And that number is only growing. So I think that's sort of the danger of being a marketplace is that you're unable to really keep track of where where all the stuff is coming from. And how is that possible, right? Like, you know, when something bad comes out, you know, like Apple is accused of, you know, using forced labor or something like that. They can at least go and say like, okay, we know who that supplier is. We know what they make. But I think that when you're an enormous marketplace, it's really difficult to kind of do that due diligence. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, I think the marketplace model does really enable them to shift responsibility. And also, you know, it's really tough to 
just ensure that literally thousands of suppliers meet compliance standards. Until very recently, there's been very little, if not nothing, said from Shein about sustainability. And now I know you did an interview Adam Winston, his appointment's recent. I haven't interviewed him either, so I don't know what makes him tick. But it's been very interesting to see that they've now hired this guy, Adam Winston, who is a high-level, experienced sustainability professional. I forget where he comes from now. Do you remember? He worked at Disney for a while, and according to his LinkedIn... He's now got the unenviable, I would say, job of trying to bring some sustainability cred to Shein. And a lot of the media kind of jumped on this and were like, well, big job. What? How are you going to do that? Because until now, they haven't really said anything about what they're doing with supply chains. And I think that they mentioned now that they were going to look at water and look at transparency. But, but I mean, huge job. I think a lot is going to be like building trust with consumers because I think one of the reasons that Shein wanted to make this hire is not only because they were having like, you know, legitimate maybe problems with their supply chain, but what we found is that the young women who shop from Shein have very conflicted feelings about it. You know, there are a lot of videos on TikTok, on YouTube, where I think that sometimes it's easy to say like, oh, these girls just want to wear the latest trends. Like they're not thinking about the consequences. And I think that that is completely untrue. I think that a lot of these shoppers are thinking about their impact on the environment. They're thinking about, you know, who are the people who are making these clothes. And there are a lot of calls online too, to like stop shopping at Shein, right? They sort of become um, a negative poster child for sort of the harms of this industry. So I think that his first task is going to be sort of establishing that, because he's in that role and, you know, theoretically has a team that is working on these issues that Shein can be trusted to improve. That's sort of going to be the biggest one. I mean, they're obviously going to be accused of greenwashing and just (laughs) rubbish, aren't they? I mean, I pulled this out from their Instagram. I was looking at their Instagram most recent posts and there was one now with a hashtag called Shein Cares. I'll read it out because I was like, come on. Shein believes in the power of bringing individuals together to support one another because together we're stronger. I mean, it's just such wafty nonsense language, isn't it? But they were talking about some philanthropy things they'd been working on. But it was interesting to see the comments. So the top two comments, as in the first two I saw, one was, Shein doesn't care, stop supporting them. And the other one was, you don't care because you stole my jewellery design and aren't taking responsibility. So, I mean, I raise this because people know that social media is a, a huge advantage, but also a danger, isn't it? Because it's almost like you can't hide from being transparent on social media because people will call you out. Yeah. And I think also like the sort of double-edged sort of social media is like when you have companies like Shein copying them, I think that like 10 years ago, if you were a small independent designer, it would be really difficult for a company like Shein to sort of get a hold of what you were doing, at least not that quickly, right? Like there's always the concern that like a Zara designer is going to see your cute shirt, you know, walking around New York or something. But I think that that's also another thing. Like, you know, a good example is the um, strawberry dress. I can't remember the designer right now, but it was this beautiful, I, 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 regret not having her name, but just this gorgeous, whimsical strawberry dress. Let's look um, it up because um, I remember that too. And I want to credit the designer, but it's interesting. You look it up and there are, I mean, just here now, 10, 20, 30 versions of this dress. Cheap, Chopo, that's a Australian one, ASOS, blah, blah, blah. But the designer was, oh yes, I remember now, Lurika Matoshi, New York. And that dress is meant to cost, you know, $500. But, you know, when it was in a boutique, it's like, you know, maybe someone might do a knockoff, you know, months down the line, right? But like something like that just gets ripped off so quickly. Um, So Shein might be getting called out on social media, but they're also able to sort of rip off all these designers. And and Megan, you were saying that there's been a lot of them, right? 
Yeah, there's been a number. I know there there have been a couple, particularly knitwear designers, actually, where there was one designer whose name I also do not remember. Um, and she's like a crochet artist. And she she literally is crocheting these designs. It takes hours. It's like a couture garment. You know, they can make it on their knitting machines much quicker than that and sell it for $13 instead of 300 the ethics behind this are complex. And I mean, we've touched on a few of them. You could do different episodes on each one of these things. I mean, there's so much to talk about, but I'm interested in where you think it's all headed because you've got essentially a whole new business model paradigm that others are bound to follow the lead of. You've got ultra fast fashion, mostly ultra cheap, but you've also got catering to groups that have felt ignored by conventional, if you like, fashion. You've also got supposedly, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt, a company that is now trying to take some steps towards being more demonstrably sustainable or responsible. Where do you think it's all headed? I think it's only going to grow. I mean, one of the things that we talked about in our reporting is that, you know, other tech companies, other Chinese tech companies like Alibaba and ByteDance are sort of working on their own e-commerce products. Alibaba actually released um, like a Shein clone called Ali Likes, which is kind of funny to see. There's a lot of money pouring into sort of the next Shein. I think this is always something that happens in the tech industry is that there's one sort of big success and then all of the venture capitalists sort of gather around and say, can we be the next one, right? Mm. Um, so we're seeing that. But I do think there is a limit, right? Like we're already seeing that the industry in China is being pushed to its limit. We're seeing shoppers sort of have a lot of ambivalence about their own habits. Also, this is, you know, we only have one planet. So I worry about like what happens in terms of the environmental impact, especially because China wants to be um, sort of a global leader when it comes to combating climate change. So I don't know how long they're going to allow this potentially. But I think for now, it's sort of on a runaway train. I completely agree that it's definitely growing, at least in the short term. And we're seeing interest from, you know, VCs like Andreessen Horowitz and companies like Cider, um, which, you know, do claim to be like marginally more sustainable than Shein. Um, but it's hard to verify. Something that we thought was so intriguing about Shein in the first place was they're basically bringing this model of shopping that was pioneered on Chinese e-commerce sites to Western consumers. That's one of the things that enabled them to win the market in the U.S., to win the market in Europe. There are a number of ways that the site is gamified. And again, these are kind of inspired by the user experience of, of Chinese e-commerce platforms. A lot of them have kind of lots of promotions and flashy pop-ups and point systems because like social media apps, effectively, they want to keep people engaged and keep people spending more time on the app. And Shein has a, a point system and you can also... And they encourage people to post photos of their purchases and post reviews of items. And so there's actually like thousands of reviews for some items um, in tons of languages, Arabic, Turkish, English, French, like you name it. And people are posting, you know, these shoes were a little bit tight. These shoes gave me a blister. These shoes you should order, you know, half size down. It's actually great as a shopper because then you're getting a lot more information and it encourages other people to post photos of themselves, you know, what the garment looks like in real life. All I can think of when I consider all of these different developments is that none of them point to slow fashion. And so in sustainability, we're always talking about, oh, when people get switched onto this, they'll recognize that they need to reduce the amount they buy. They need to slow down, appreciate things, repair things, care for things for longer. But this is such a, it's in complete opposition, isn't it? And yet 
it's not all bad. Some of it's fun. Some of it, as we've talked about, fills a gap that wasn't serviced. But they just seem completely warring, don't they? And that, I guess that's why I asked you, where do you think this is headed? Because will we see twin tracks where you've got like a sort of divided fashion audience, not by age and demographic, but by, I don't know, wanting to slow down and connect and then wanting to speed up and connect? Or do you think this is just going to eclipse all the sustainability stuff just because it's such a juggernaut? I don't know. I think those are the same people. And I think that that's sort of like the weird paradox of it. Yeah, I do. Because I think that like all those people are me, right? In the beginning of our Shein reporting, like I'm not even going to deny it. Like I bought some stuff. I was like, I really need a bikini and I don't want to spend $100 on it. I open my you know top drawer of my dresser. Sometimes I like look at that bikini sort of guiltily, but I'm like, it also fits well and I like it and I'm going to keep wearing it. And it sort of lives alongside, you know, all of these items that I thrifted. And there's nothing more that I love than like going to a vintage store I haven't been to before. And I think there are a lot of people like that. And that's sort of the paradox of it, right? Like how is this growing at the same time that thrift stores are opening all the time and people are making their own clothes and there's sort of been this sewing revival, right? Like how is that all happening at the same time? And I think that it's like consumers are more complicated, especially young female consumers than companies give them credit for. So maybe there's space for all of this, but I hope that, you know, the space for the sustainable stuff grows more than the others. But I think it's like, it's not warring factions, I guess. It's like the same factions inside one person. Mm, Just to add to that, in terms of more sustainable fashion, there's always going to be people who want to be shopping at this price point. There's always going to be people who are motivated by trends. And it doesn't mean those people aren't, you know, eco-conscious, but, you know, you can't always spend $60 for something from Everlane when you could spend $6 and, you know, not have that chunk out of your wallet. And so I think kind of looking to a consumer as the lever there is a little bit misplaced. It's going to take a top-down change. It's going to take I would say, you know, some kind of regulation. Yeah, I think it's complicated. And like, there are always going to be like people at the extreme, right? Like an image that like is probably burned in my brain forever. And and Megan's too, I would say, is like these Shein hauls where like a girl like dumps out hundreds of items and is like, I spent a thousand dollars on Shein and like, look at everything I got. And like, there are people like that, right? Who like think that that's fine. And then there are people who are like, if you use a plastic straw, like you're dead to me, right? And But I think that most of us are sort of in the middle um, and are sort of figuring these things out. And I totally agree with Megan that I hope that we can see some sort of regulation for the worst of it. You know, the stuff that's like, you know, polluting our rivers and, and these really harsh chemicals. I hope that in my lifetime, we we do something about it. But I don't think the answer is in complicated consumers alone. Mm. And also we do such a, you know, it's ridiculous to expect the consumer to change everything. We need to have those three things together, which is brands being responsible, consumers making better choices, and then legislation to ensure that injustice doesn't happen. But I want to ask you, Louise, in closing about this is just cute because I, I watched this video that you did when you worked at Wired and it was their 25th birthday. Were you 25 when you did that? I'm not sure. I was, yeah. I think that was sort of why why they wanted me to do it. <laughs> but they challenged you to live for a day using 90s tech and it made me laugh because I was in that age nearly. I was young in the 90s and I was like, I remember using a pencil. <laughs> we'll share a video. Anyway, we'll share a link. If that experiment was replicated or duped slightly in 25 years with the lens on fast fashion. What do you think young people of tomorrow will make of ultra fast fashion today? I hope they're horrified to some degree. And I think that they'll be surprised by 
how hard Megan and I and Wensi had to work to get this information. Like, I hope there's a lot more transparency and like, I would love on their like hologram metaverse app or whatever, when they pull up the shirt, they can see like what factory it came from. And like, there's a lot more transparency about where stuff originates. And I hope that there is a lot more understanding between the West and China, because I think a lot of sort of the narratives about how our stuff gets made is really distorted through a lens. So I hope that like, you know, just a a lens of sort of xenophobia and not really understanding this place that can seem so far away. So those are my two hopes. (laughs) Megan? I completely agree. I hope that there's tech-enabled way for people to have a lot more transparency about their shopping choices. And I certainly hope that, you know, more information helps reduce people's assumptions and stereotypes, especially about, you know, production and supply chains in places like China. And I hope that Shein is not in vintage stores. <laughs> oh my God. It hold <laughs> I'm scared that long. of that. Of like the Shein crop tops like in, in vintage stores. I'm really I'm terrified of like my kids being like, Mom, why didn't you keep your Shein crop tops? Like I want to wear them now. That They'll I think will absolutely happen. They will some of them will disintegrate, but some of them are made of like such intense plastic that I think that they will be here. And my kids are gonna be like, Mom, like when you lived in California, like I want the crop top from your Instagram, you know. I want the gonna, cloud slides. <laughs> yeah, I, I want your. We, we talked for a long time about these. Like, they look so weird. Like these squishy, like house slides, basically that were showing up on all these websites, sort of in the same way that the vest was. Um, but yeah, where are your cloud slides, mom? From twenty twenty. Let us only hope that they don't say, "Where is your pee funnel?" I'm sorry to end on that note. <laughs> That's great. That's great, um, mom. These pee funnels are going for three hundred dollars on Depop too, or whatever. Like that. That's my worst fear. <laughs> Oh my gosh, thank you very much for coming on The Wardrobe Crisis and talking to us about She In. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you Because I love you Because I love you